You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. That's what you're afraid of? A crime of sheer genius that builds to a climax of sheer terror. He doesn't suspect. Not at all. He will tell me soon. When the telephone rings, the terror begins. Hello. Hello? You're doing your terror like you did it to me. Think of where to run. Think of how to hide. Think of how to escape the silent partner. I don't know how you managed to pull it off. Well, I guess you're going to have to tell me one of these days. But we uh, we worked it together, didn't we? What I knew you. You changed. I'm going to kill you, so help me. I'm going to kill you. Starring Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, and Susanna York. One night, when you come home, you'll find me on the inside, and that'll be the night you'll wish you'd never been born. It was the only way to make him the silent partner. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Melville. Hi, Mike. November 2021 kicks off with a look at Daryl Duke's The Silent Partner. Released in 1978, it was from a screenplay by Curtis Hansen and based on the book Think of a Number by Anders Bodelson. 
The film stars Elliot Gould as Miles Cullen, a rather mild-mannered bank teller and keeper of the vault, who figures out that his bank has been targeted for a robbery. With this piece of information, he decides to rob the bank himself and let the robber, played by Christopher Plummer, take the fall. We will be spoiling the film, so if you haven't seen The Silent Partner, turn off the podcast, watch the film, come on back. I think that's all. Hit play. We will still be here. Colin, when was the first time you saw The Silent Partner, and what did you think? I wish I could say that uh, I was named after Miles Cullen, and so I grew up with this movie, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, I first saw it in prep for NoirCon 2016. I was on a panel about 70s crime movies and decided to just watch as many 70s crime movies as it could possibly cram into the uh, hours that I was awake. And this one really stood out to me first because it reminded me of one of my favorite Frederick Brown novels, Murder Can Be Fun. I don't know if either of you have read that one or or Brown fans. It was done in the 40s, and it also begins with a Santa Claus robbery. The rest of the plot is very different, but just that little bit just, you know, it's a great little, you know, uh, device. Um and and I, I love the movie. It's um, disquieting and just you know different and quirky, and it's it's not like other crime movies from the seventies. So I, I I immediately you know loved it and I've watched it many times since. And Jonathan, how about yourself? Yeah, the first time I actually checked Twitter today just to see when I last spoke about this film, and and the first time I saw it was in July twenty fourteen. I've got a record of of me uh, commenting on it, um, and I remember I found it in a charity shop. Here in Scotland, in uh, in Edinburgh, and uh, and the cover. I'm sure we'll talk about the cover later. is It's a bit sort of Reservoir Dogsy, but we'll get into that later. And I think I was kind of conned by that. Uh, and but but I loved it, and it's a very different film to the cover um, suggests. But I am a big fan of Elliot Gould, big fan of heist kind of robber robbery crime films, I suppose, noir films, uh, and also I love Canadian film and telly. Uh, big fan of G South which I think I'll mention again in a little while uh, when it comes to mentioning Santa's and G-South. Um, so no, I loved it at the time, and uh, and I've watched it a couple of times since. Brilliant. Love it. When was the first time you saw the movie? I honestly don't remember. You guys know, or probably know, I'm a huge Elliot Gould fan, so this might have been when I was just gorging on Gould movies back in 2011, 2012, or it might have been before that. Jonathan, you mentioned the cover, and we can go ahead and talk about that a little bit now, because the cover that I had, so there is that, as you put it, Reservoir Dog type cover, which... Man, talk about deceptive. And then the cover I had was, I think, the VHS, which was Elliot Gould in a phone booth, petrified of the phone. And it is just the schlockiest cover in the world. I don't know which one is worse, but thank goodness now Kino's got a much better cover that is more in keeping with the original poster art. But even the poster art back in the 70s. Some of it was okay, some of it wasn't. All of it plays up this whole idea of Santa Claus, because Christopher Plummer, the first few times that we see him, he is dressed as Santa Claus, and Santa robs the bank. So that's kind of like the good hook to it. But man, oh man, is that cover art just really off-putting of those earlier versions. I mean, I suppose, although it is terrible, it did work. <laughs> so it, did, it did, you know, it got me watching it, but not for the right reasons, really, I suppose. That Reservoir Dogs DVD one just sort of seemed like a kind of like almost generic, like you could have applied that to anything. It's like clip art elements. And then I think there's just like a few photos of them at the bottom where it's like, 
you you could have put photos from a different movie and it would have worked if I remember the one that one correctly. It's pretty bad. And yeah, I love Canadian films too. Some people would call them Canadian tax shelter films, and this one definitely fits into that. And I love the Eaton Center. Um, so much of this movie is shot at the Eaton Center. Eaton Center was one of the first places I ever went to when I went to Toronto the first time, which was probably 95, somewhere around there. And wow, I, I it's so nice because the Eaton Center had just opened when they were filming this. And so you have this whole idea of the the mall overall as like a world and then the what is it? The first bank of Toronto on that. I think it's the first floor. And this whole idea of these bank employees, it's just such this weird, insular, incestuous world of these bank employees, because that really is so much the heart of the film is all of these bank employees and the relationships that they have with each other. You've got the boss who is sleeping with Susanna York, the Julie character. You've got uh, John Candy who's sleeping with uh, this character named Louise. But then there's also this other guy, Berg, who's sleeping with her at the same time. And, of course, the boss is married. So you get a little bit outside of work when it comes to the boss's wife. And then you've got Miles who really wants to sleep with Julie. So it's like, who wants to sleep with who and when and who's available and really so much of this film is him kind of wooing Julie but at the same time just fucking it up over and over again <laughs> and sometimes he uses that as a plot device and sometimes he actually seems very sincere that he would like to end up with her as the girl they really need some HR counseling at that bank but it's it's a it is a great setting though isn't it it's it's just as you say that little sort of um, sealed off world from the the world outside and I just love the look of that bank as well just remembering I, I actually went to the Eaton Centre as well it must have been about ninety five ninety six oh we were there at the same time probably yeah I, but it's a shame I didn't know this film at the time because I'd love to now uh, you know do a pilgrimage to where that that set was where where the the office was the bank sorry. Uh, it was probably a shoe shop now or something. But no, yeah, just that little insular kind of world with, uh, and, and just that, that of course, ultra 70s interior is, is fantastic. And I love this Miles Cullen character. He is so well-defined just with a few things. Like his whole thing about fish, he really is into fish. And it feels like to me that he likes to control the world when it comes to the fish tank that he has. And he's just all about like adding this angel fish and he's had it on order forever. And he just seems so content to be in his apartment alone with all these fish and just kind of observing them almost to me in the way that he observes all of his coworkers. Like they're all in the fish tank together and he's just kind of watching what they do. And really so much of this seems to be like not necessarily his direct point of view, but really through his eyes, how we're seeing these co-workers of his moving around. And then the other thing that I love in his apartment is the chessboard that he has. And then it's just kind of hanging out, you know, very Philip Marlowe, who he played uh, five years before this. And this whole idea of him not really having anybody to play with, but this movie then allows him to play with somebody. So the fish tank uh, analogy is, is a really good one because I think the way the camera angles quite a lot of time. The, the camera's outside the uh, the bank. Of course, it's it's all glass that that window, and so we're looking through at the the, the humans as uh, Miles is, of course, looking at his his uh, his fish in his little apartment. 
Uh, and I suppose in closed spaces, I mean, everything's quite small, isn't it? You've got the, the small bank and the small fish tank and the small apartments. Uh, everything kind of takes place in these tiny little little spaces. And then inside the bank as well, there are there's lots of glass as well. Everything you see, see what everyone's up to. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of that and a lot of observing going on. I think the fish tank, which which is unique to the this movie, because um, it's not in the book. I don't remember it being in the other movies. Um, I think it was a really great addition that, in some ways, made the main character a little more sympathetic. I think they, this movie did a really good job of sort of fleshing out the main character. Yeah, it was interesting. There's a uh, review of the film talking about how amoral it is, and I guess it's just because really once. Miles sees a opportunity to commit this crime and really get ahead in life that he takes it. And I wouldn't necessarily call it amoral, but I think that he just does what we would all like to do. He's kind of living the fantasy of like, okay, what happens if all this money can suddenly drop in your lap? Like he basically is taking something that would have been taken anyway, but he's taking it himself. He's getting ahead. He's really like the ultimate capitalist in this. Just like, okay, well, this guy's going to rob me, so I'll rob him first, basically. Totally. And because it's Elliot Gould as well, I think you're on his side, really, aren't you? Because it's Elliot Gould. If it was anyone else, you might be thinking, oh, they're a bit dodgy. They're a little bit suspect. I don't, don't really care. But with him, I, I'm quite I'm behind him all the way. You're kind of rooting for him, whereas I feel like in the earlier ones... You know, he was a little more cold and calculating, and I, I, I really love the warmth that, that Gould brings to every role that he does. Um, just that, that goofy smile. You know, he's just so charming, and you see him with the fish, and he's trying to talk to Susanna York, and that guy just has no – he does not know how to talk to women. No, not at all. <laughs> but he seems to get better as the movie goes on, because once there's a second female character that's introduced, or main female character, he does a pretty good job with that. He has that great line where, oh, you don't want to be alone? Well, if we go to the same place, we're guaranteed to find somebody. <laughs> it's just like, you nailed that one. <laughs> and I kind of like in this version, he doesn't investigate the Christopher Plummer character, uh, Rankle, I think his name is in this one. He doesn't necessarily get all of the information about Rankle before the robbery actually takes place, that he has to become more of an investigator as the movie goes on. Because in other versions, I know we'll talk more about them later, but in other versions, that Miles Cullen type character is, once he figures out who it is that's going to rob the bank, I mean, he's actually following them home then rather than following them home later on. Like he knows everything about them right up front. And so it does feel to your point, a little bit more cold and calculating as far as like, Oh, I'm going to set this guy up for a fall. The other versions remind me a little more of like a Patricia Highsmith protagonist, whereas Gould's Miles Cullen, he's a working guy. You know, his boss is a jerk. He's not really invested in his job. And it just seems like he almost stumbles into this where it's just like a light bulb goes off and could I get away with this? Is this going to work? And I feel like he's even a little surprised that it does work. And Miles is a smart guy who, for whatever reason in his life, he's just kind of decided to become this kind of cut up, slightly cut off character from, from other people, isn't he? And he's got his fish. We've already mentioned the fish. That's his, his world, really. So it's, it's interesting that he is really smart. He's a really smart guy, but just nothing has come along. He's He's kind of happy, I suppose, to let life just pass him by. And then, yeah, he gets better with women once he's got this money 
it kind of gives him some sort of status, I suppose, in, in his own head. And, and I suppose literally in a way because he has got the money, even though it's tucked away in a, in a safe. But no, it's fascinating to see the character develop and, and change as it, as it goes on. The two things that are outside of the bank for me that also kind of belie who he is as a character. One is that yellow sports car. Because it doesn't feel like that character should be driving that car. That is his one thing where it's just like, hey, this is who I am on the inside. I'm the guy who drives the yellow sports car. But even the sports car, he can't take it above 40 because the top's going to fly off. So he's got to be a little, he's got to be a little careful. And the other thing that's holding him back is his dad, his father character. And we only really see him once alive. And we don't necessarily know what's going on with him um, until a little bit later in the scene. There's a nice scene. This all, uh, the first half of the movie takes place around Christmas time, thus the Santa Claus. And it's him and his dad, and they're at this nursing home. And these kids are there, and they're all singing a Christmas carol. And he's sitting there with his dad. And then after it's done, or as the scene kind of winds down, he starts to talk to his dad, and his dad is completely out of it. There's no response whatsoever. And you're just like, has this always been their relationship? Has his dad always been withdrawn? Or, you know, obviously he's withdrawn medically now. He is, you know, kind of nearing the end of his life. And so you're just like, okay, this feels like it's one of those things that's really tethering Miles to this area is that he's got to take care of his dad. He has this responsibility to his father. And then once his father passes away, I mean, that almost starts the second half of the movie. Like we start a few months after Christmas time and then it's bright and sunny at this funeral. I mean, there's a big thing too when it comes to inside versus outside because you don't necessarily see Gould in the outside during the day that much. There's a lot of night shoots that are happening in here, but it feels like the second half of the movie, a lot of more of it is taking place in sunshine. When you have a, a job like he has nine to five, your days don't really exist. No, especially in the wintertime, as we know right now, where it's like, I get up, it's dark, I go to work, I come home, it's dark. I'm living my life in darkness right now. You know, the only time I get to see the sun, if the sun comes out at all, is maybe if I go for a walk at lunchtime. Otherwise, yeah, my entire life is darkness right now. I suppose that ties into that, what we were saying earlier about Miles changing as a character. As you're saying, Mike, it's kind of that his dad passes away and he's now freer. I suppose, and then this money is sitting there waiting for him. So it would have been interesting, I suppose, to see what he was, what was going on in his mind in these months in between, because he, I think I'm right in saying he doesn't really touch the money at all, does he? He's he, he just leaves it there. Well, he can't because of the, the key, of course. Yeah. Um, so he's it's this weird situation where he has this potential new life, but he still can't do anything about it. He's still kind of trapped. Poor guy. Colin, you brought up Patricia Highsmith, and I definitely see a lot of strangers on a train when it comes to this. And it's not necessarily that, I guess, yeah, it is kind of strangers on a train in, insofar as the one character who comes uh, and basically hits on the other is very much the Reichel character, the Christopher Plummer character. There is a strong aura of uh, homoeroticism going on here. And he even says towards the end of the part, I mean, 
the name of the movie is The Silent Partner. And he keeps saying, like, hey, we're partners. We're partners. We're in this together. And Miles is just like, fuck, no. No, we're not in this together. Mm-mm. And, but, I mean, we have that whole thing of, like, no, no, no. We planned this out together. We're in this together now. And he's, like, just denying it the whole time. And really, Reichel has – man, he's got this weird relationship with women because – after the robbery takes place, and of course, during the robbery, it's, you know, there's a gun in my pocket. I'm like, oh, is there a gun in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me kind of thing? After the robbery, when he finds out that Gould has fucked him, and he literally says, you fucked me. You know, you're fucking her the way you fucked me. Like, that comes up twice in the movie. After he finds out that Gould fucked him, there's that devastating scene of him in the sauna when this girl comes in and is uh, wants to make love with him and he's okay for a little bit but you hear on the audio track just the number of dollars that were really there and that he should have gotten and that's thus think of a number like he realizes just how much money he should have gotten but then Gould fucked him over Yes, it is. But as Paul Teller, I'm in charge of all of the money kept on the floor at any one time. Well, uh, is, there, is there any strategy you're supposed to use in the event of a robbery, you know, way down by the bank? Well, I'm afraid I'm not at liberty. $48,350. $48,350. And he just goes ape shit on this girl and almost crushes her skull. I mean, it is, it is crazy that violence. It's so brutal. It's a brutal scene. And I can see that really turning a lot of people off from this movie. I know my wife was not happy to watch this one again. This character, Reichel, we haven't really delved into him too much yet. And I think there's more going on with him than there is with Miles at the start. Anyway, he's got this, this, he's, he comes across as quite potentially quite charming. But then, of course, we see this twist, and I and I kind of expected them to just be this kind of charming criminal who drifts in and out, looks handsome, and uh, you know does his thing. But this happens in, in the sauna, and it really is it is shocking, and it's just it's 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 it puts a whole new light on his character. And of course, you see how violent he is, and the other guys say to him something like, um, "You're going to go to jail now, or we're going to call the cops." And just the way he looks at them, the camera comes up to him. And Christopher Plummer, we need to talk more about him, don't we? Because he's just he's su- superb in this film. Uh, and that scene is really, it's just nasty, but it, it it obviously does the job of of just showing what he's really made of. You're totally right that Plummer does an amazing job in this movie. And that scene, you know, captures just how sadistic he is and sort of raises a level of violence that the film hadn't had before that. Like, you know, there had been the robbery, but nothing had been too violent or too dangerous. And at that moment, you know, the stakes have really been raised. And I, I, I think it's an interesting change from the source material because originally that character is not, like in the book, he's not sadistic. He's not, he's not that violent at all. Um, I feel like this movie's really playing up, you know, this sort of like, sadistic sexual violence to, you know, kind of scare the audience. And Christopher Plummer is incredibly handsome in this film. He just looks so good. But then he's got these mannerisms that really kind of belie. I thought about the homoeroticism 
And just some of the things that he does with his hand, where he's holding his hand up to his face. I think he's wearing a lot of guy liner. He's got jewelry around his wrists and around his, his neck. And, I mean, he's not really playing, like, very fey. It's more like an aggressive homosexuality that's coming across. And, you know, the way that he is so violent against these women, both of the times that there is major violence in the film, it is against female characters. And then, yeah, it just feels like he's kind of obsessed with Miles and really trying to play this game with him. And I think when he says, you know, you you fucked her like you fucked me, I think he really would like to fuck Miles Cullen. And I guess that's also sort of high Smithian in that the criminal is sort of turned on by another criminal. Like, it's this, as you're sort of pointing out, there's this link between, you know, sex attraction and criminality. And I do like when Miles then finally does become that investigator once the robbery takes place and he is able to follow Reichel and find out where he lives. And then Miles becomes a, you know, yet another criminality type of thing because he's already really robbed the bank. And then he goes and he steals a van and parks the van in front of where Reichel lives and then does the whole thing. I love when he gets on the phone because the phone is majorly important in this as well. I mean, I guess there, there was some truth to the horrible VHS cover of him in the phone booth. Uh, he never is afraid of the phone. He definitely uses it for his own ends a lot of times, but him calling in to the cops with this whole thing of Reichel having stolen this van and how he puts on that comic voice because there's so much role playing in this movie as well. I mean, we talked about how Christopher Plummer wears the Santa suit. Towards the end of the film, he's going to go and drag. But then there's also just when you put on certain affectations, when you get into a role, and that's really Miles getting into a role. And cut the crap. He's got a gun. He stole a van tonight, a delivery van. It's parked at six one one Winston in Cabbage Town. He's inside, but you better get your ass moving. What's his name? Don't worry. You'll recognize him when you see him. He's an old pal, but be careful. He's got the rod on him. Bye. He even criticizes his own performance because he starts talking like a 1930s gangster and talking about how, you know, he's got the rod with him. And then when he gets out of the phone booth, he's just like, Rod, Jesus. (laughs) That's probably one of my favorite moments in the film is when he's critiquing his own performance. And speaking of role playing, I, I sort of feel like y'all were touching on this earlier, the relationship between Elliot Gould and Susanna York. You know, it's, you know, sometimes he's taking her out because the boss wants him to. Is he on a date with her or is he not even ghouled from the beginning when there, uh, takes her and he buys the fish and then they're at this bar and this music's playing and she's sort of eating the pretzels. It's like she's a little disappointed that he's not like flirting with her. And then she makes that great line, like talking about the fish. That's who you're going home with. But like that wasn't supposed to be a date, but I don't know. I, 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 I dig what you're saying, Mike. And I think it, this sense of like playing different roles and identities, you know, is a big part of their relationship. Well, that kind of reminds me of when the mistletoe is hang- hanging up in the office and she's like, everybody else has had a turn. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> it's like everybody else has, has had a ride on the town bicycle, but you haven't yet, Miles, so come on over. And rather than planting one on her, he just gives her a little peck on the cheek. And yeah, she seems very genuinely disappointed that there wasn't more passion behind that kiss. He's not good at picking up signals. Yeah, it does feel like they've all certainly kissed her. And of course, it is just, there's that, that, that ongoing 
gag, I suppose, of um, talking there about the bank manager setting Miles up with Julie to take her out. Uh, then Reichel, of course, does the same with uh, Elaine. Yeah, later on. So he's again being set up. So he's never actually finding these women himself. It's always somebody else setting him up. <laughs> does feel smarter when it comes to Elaine because it isn't very far into their conversation until she says, oh, your father told me about you or your father would talk about you. And he's just like, my father would talk about me. And it's like, you can take that one way as like, oh, I'm surprised because the old man didn't like me. But he, I think he immediately centers, you know, centers in on the whole idea of, no, my dad was pretty much comatose, you know? <laughs> so no, he wasn't going to. So as soon as she says that, luckily the warning light goes off. So it feels like after that, then he starts to play with her. And he's the one who finally says like, what do you really want from me? Really pulls away that curtain. So it's not like the reveal is a shock to him. He's just like, right from that moment, he's just like, okay, something is hinky. We have to figure this out. But, you know, again, he's that investigator, like, all right, let me try to figure out what's happening here with this girl. But she kind of comes in and out. She'll show up at places again, sending off those warning signals like, here I was just at this place, and all of a sudden this beautiful girl is here. And also, she's incredibly attractive, and she just keeps coming on to me, and I'm mild-mannered, meek Miles Cullen. Why the hell is this happening? So I'm glad that he's not stupid about that. I think this movie does a really great job of having this scenario where it is sort of an every person character who gets sucked into this world and they're a little ill-equipped for it but they're trying to but i feel like in some movies there would be these moments where it's like okay this is too over the top like no this character really couldn't you know maintain himself in this situation situation but they keep the stakes relatively low and easy but also tense and there's like you know this money on the line and i just think this movie has like a perfect balance for the everyday person drawn into this world of crime and they have to balance who they're supposed to be and you know this other secret life i don't think it's any coincidence that when the robbery actually takes place that he's putting the money in a superman lunchbox because i really feel like miles cullen thinks he's Clark Kent, who can turn himself into Superman. And I don't think I'm reading too much into this, because Curtis Hansen's pretty damn smart, and Daryl Duke was no slouch either. So the changes that they make and the things that they do in this, I think all of them have reasoning behind them. It doesn't feel like anything is just kind of happenstance in this, because we are talking about that insular world. This world is very controlled by the people behind this film, and it feels like everything is done for a reason, that there isn't just a mistake. I kept thinking about outside of Miles's window, there's a word in neon, and I kept trying to figure out what that was, because I'm like, I bet you that's got some meaning here, too. It's not just a matter of just a word outside of a window. You know, the whole thing that the angelfish is from the Caribbean, and he talks later on about like, oh, you know, I'd love to go someplace warm. We see him with a sun lamp at one point in his apartment trying to get tan. I'm just like, okay, that's probably his dream, you know, that he wants to go to the Caribbean where he could actually maybe see angelfish in the wild. And he wants a puffer fish. I wonder if that is some sort of symbol of a character that can sort of change and, you know, grow big, you know, be something you don't, it doesn't look like it's going to be. And poison you with those big spikes on it. Fugu! It is blowfish, 
But I should warn you that one... One pal, fuggle me! The other thing is with the Superman, there is that connection to Susanna York, isn't there, who was in Superman? Yeah, I think that was the same year, right? Well, I was going to say, I should have checked the dates out, but um, I wonder if it was uh, an in-joke or... I did see this is the same year Elliot Gould was in Matilda. I really love that movie with the, with the, the boxing kangaroo. We got to talk about that one of these days because I I have so many Matilda interviews. It's not even funny because yeah, doing the research on the book, I've just like managed to talk to the guy who's actually inside the Matilda costume. I managed to talk to the producer, and I think I might have talked to the writer or director. I can't remember. And then hopefully we can get uh, Elliot back to talk about boxing and kangaroos. Knowing him, he was probably a close personal friend of Muhammad Ali. I mean, the guy seemed to know everybody. Because at one point, and you'll hear in the interview later on, he wanted Mick Jagger to play the Christopher Plummer role. He wanted him for Reichel. And I'm just like, wow. It wouldn't have worked out with the tax shelter stuff because they needed more Canadian talent on this. You can't get much more Canadian talent than Christopher Plummer. But can you imagine... (laughs) Mick Jagger dressed up as Santa Claus or strutting around in the women's clothes later on. I think that would have been pretty boss. One of the moments that I wanted to talk about, again, going back to the phone, is I love when Miles stands up for himself. And there's that whole thing of, you know, it's talking about closed spaces. And Reichel violates the space. He violates Miles's sanctuary by coming in while well, he violates it a few times. The first time he comes in, he just happens to turn a light on. And then he calls up Miles and is like, do you see that light by your lamp? And starts talking about like the chess problem that he has on his board. And then, you know, as we go through, it gets worse and worse. He trashes the place. He trashes the place again and murders the one woman in the apartment. One of the most horrific scenes, but I love, I think it's either that first conversation or the second conversation when uh, Miles invites Reichel up to the apartment and then Reichel goes downstairs and then does the same trick to Reichel by calling upstairs. And then when he just tells him, go fuck yourself, it's like, oh, that's nice. I really like when he kind of starts to stand up for himself. That is a fantastic moment. Yeah. Just, just seeing him running down the stairs, getting the better of him. I don't know. It's not really a, a connection to it, really, but I was watching The Long Goodbye last night. Um, and there's a brilliant moment in that where he runs down the stairs to beat the baddies down. You know, they, they take the lift and he takes the stairs. So it just came to mind that, that little trick that he plays on his opponents in, in a couple of films. But no, it's, it's brilliant seeing him kind of almost turning the tables on, on Reichel. And we talked a little bit about playing a role. And I really like that eventually he. I don't think he trusts Elaine enough, but he uses her to finally get the money in the box. Like we said earlier, he has keys. He he actually puts the money that he steals back in the bank, like the one place that nobody's going to look for it. He puts it into a safety deposit box, figures out how these things work, puts it in there, hides the keys in a jam jar, which then his landlady ends up throwing out after his apartment has been trashed at one point. He's just desperate to figure out a way to try to get that money, try to get back into that safety deposit box. So he ends up using a lane. So just the same way you mentioned how Reichel is doing the same thing as the boss by, you know, sending this woman and keeping him company and these things. 
Elliot Gould then, or Miles, ends up using Elaine to his own purposes. And so she's there at the bank, dressed up in this kind of fuzzy wig, these kind of things, big sunglasses. So he's, you know, got her play acting. And then they're racing against time because Susanna York's character is the one who owns all of the uh, safety deposit boxes. That's her role at the bank. That then he has to go outside, grab her, and then make this lovelorn confession to her, kiss her, and that's how he manages to get Elaine out of the bank. I really like how there's multiple roles being played all in one scene, and it's really super tense. That scene just breaks my heart, because it's a moment where it's just like, Elliot Gould is finally, you know, connecting with Susanna York, and she's just so into this moment. And then when she's like, when can I see you again? And he's like, oh, not tonight. It just feels like a real betrayal that is just some real treachery and just, you know, manipulation. It's, that's, it's kind of the nastiest we see Elliot Gould. And he even seems a little uncomfortable with what he's doing and the way he's acting. Just like in his eyes. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice, I think, to, to have a little bit more of, uh, of Julie in the film. She's obviously in it quite a lot, but I think just, uh, it is his film as well. But I think she deserves a little bit more, um, interrogation of her what she's thinking about him and, and just her life as well. But yeah, that's a really, just that whole sequence is fantastic though. Just, as you say, kind of all different, play, playing different characters and uh, trying to, I, I mean, it is a little bit, there's just a few times when they're, when Miles is in there with Elaine and he, they have a little, he sort of doesn't shout at her, but he, he says things, I think someone could be around that corner. You know, that's how tense it is where you're thinking, well, if someone comes in, you've just, why did you say that? And then nobody does, thankfully, but, uh, I think when it gets you doing that, when you're sort of thinking, oh, don't say that, then you, you, you're doing well. The director's doing well. Yeah, when Elaine is about to take the money and he's basically wrestling with her <laughs> in, in that area with all the safety deposit boxes, it's like, man, that is super suspect. You better not do that. Like, because he's even got the guy who's drilling the, the locks off, like, right behind him. And I'm like, oh, my God, if this guy sees it, you are toast, man. Yeah, and, I, and of course, you don't know what, what Elaine's going to do. How loyal is she to Miles? Is she going to just take that money? Because that, and even watching it this time, and I, this is maybe the third time I've seen it, I couldn't quite remember. It's like, oh, is she going to take it? Because she could. All she has to say is to the bank manager, you know, this is happening. And I just, and uh, again, a sort of slight tangent, but that thing of not quite remembering what happened, I was sure that the, the guards were shot at some point, and and it didn't. It, that doesn't happen, but but it could happen. It's that sort of film where. He quite easily could get shot and, and be dead, but no, it just it, re, it repays watching, rewatching this film because it you do or certainly I even after you know, after a few years can't quite remember what happens, which makes it all the the better, of course, for those twists. Something that really strikes me on rewatching this movie is just how wonderfully visual everything is. Like the the setup from the you know when Elliot Gould picks up the. Um, the carbon copy, you know, the way he's tracing it to write sort of flirtatious notes to Susanna York. And then he, you know, sees the, the ransom note, the way he sees the lettering on the, you know, the, the, the Santa sign. Just so much is communicated with, you know, without dialogue. Um, it's really impressive, especially seeing where this came from in the book. Like they, they did a really marvelous job of, um, translating everything in visual terms we'll talk about the original version of this later but i you know i watched that 
uh, a few days before and it's got the subtitles but the subtitles are not amazing <laughs> no they're not <laughs> no and I, I but i think what you're saying there there about it working visually is absolutely right because so much happened in that uh, that other film that i could tell what was happening even though i couldn't quite understand what they were saying you know and this one i i had the volume on so i i i could hear it but i do you're, you're right i think if i had you know muted it i'm sure we would have known exactly what was happening you're right it's very visual everything is and every scene is is needed as well which of course is vital to any film but but there's not any uh extra extraneous scenes that i can see no you're totally right there really isn't and even things where you're like well why is this happening why are at are, are they at the silver dollar in this earlier scene with uh christopher Plummer drinking and then it comes back again later on when we see where elaine is working so even if miles hasn't caught on at that point we the audience are like she's working at the same place that we saw christopher Plummer drinking at earlier there definitely is a connection between these two characters this whole thing there's one character who is seen but i don't think he has any lines freddie is his name and they mentioned freddie a few times i think he's like maybe the owner of the silver dollar and there's some stuff like oh he got into trouble and yada 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 Again, I think that works better in the book because you get a little bit more of him that way. But I think just mentioning the character and knowing that there's this guy who's kind of helping Plummer through uh, some of the stuff that he's going through, even to the point of when he shows back up in the narrative, like because Christopher Plummer is out of this movie for a little chunk of time. We get one scene of him in jail with Elaine. So again, if we haven't figured it out, here it is right in front of your face. But I think by that point, we we know because she's already helped out Miles uh, with the safety deposit boxes. And at that point, now we see how she's working with Wrinkle and that she's lying to him and saying, oh, no, he'll tell me eventually where the money is. I'm almost there. I'm, I've almost got it. And then when he shows up suddenly, when she, Elaine and Miles are having dinner, I think he even mentions that Freddy guy again to be like, oh, yeah, Freddy convinced them to lower the charges and, and help me out of jail sooner. I thought this would be a nice surprise. Wink, wink. Like, I wanted to check up on you. I wanted to come back to my uh, my my obligatory due south reference, which I think I need to get into every podcast I'm on, really. But so I love that show. But there is a connection to due south. Uh, there's a couple, if I may mention them. Uh, of course, the due south was set in Chicago, but it was all filmed in Toronto. And there's an episode called "Gift of the Wheelman," uh, written by Paul Haggis from 1990. Oh, what would it be, three or four? Which has a gang of Santas robbing bank so uh, i was googling and trying to see if i could see any more connections and trying to see if, if paul haggis had maybe watched this film and it maybe inspired him to for his episode but there is a, one other connection that i could find which is the detective willard played by ken pogue uh, in this film is also in the pilot episode of g south as gerard and um, I think he pops up again later on. But but I just love the idea that Toronto seems to be this uh, this place where where Santas are <laughs> are all criminals. Uh, Paul Haggis is listening, and he and he wants to to let us know if if it was inspired by the the, the silent partner. I would love to know. And I'm glad that they are shooting Toronto as Toronto. You mentioned Chicago as Toronto, but this one is very Toronto as Toronto. We get the CN Tower, we get the Eaton Center. There's no hiding that this is a Toronto movie. And it's just really nice to see the fact that they're not hiding it and it's not Chicago or they're not faking it. And it, and it really works, I think. It's just nice to see a, a film in a, in a different city and 
uh, and the CN Tower pops up. I think is it only once maybe at the end, but it's just nice. It's nice to see it's not been. Yeah, and they throw in little things like, oh, that was down on Queen Street, and I'm just like, that's nice. It you know, really feels of a place and not of a place pretending to be a different place. Um, yeah, I feel like I kind of brush past the beginning of the film a little too quickly, so if there is other stuff that you guys want to talk about, I apologize, and we can definitely come back to it or talk about it now. Santa, Santa, I want a pelican in a train. Oh, you do, do you? Will I get them? Oh, yes. Will I really get them? Yes. Where is he? Both of them? Both of them. Mom, Santa's going to give me everything I want. Uh, He's got no, my no, toys no, in no. his pocket. No, 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 no. He's got my toys in his That's enough. Percy. Mom, Santa's going to... I don't think so, dear. <laughs> Mom, Santa's going to give me everything I want. Go ahead. I, I left my checkbook at home. Thank you. I kind of wonder if, if Miles sees him, uh, sees Rankle as being a little weak because he keeps coming in and then backing off. Though Wrinkle is very smart when he decides to come into the bank. He knows who's bringing in big cash deposits as he's figured that out, you know, even off screen. And then the two times that we see this one kind of shady looking businessman bringing in these deposits, I mean, shady insofar as he's, he's like a, a lech. He starts making remarks about, uh, I think her name is Louise, the one that John Candy ends up marrying, who seems to be pregnant with Berg's child rather than John Candy's child. <laughs> you know, oh, too much Christmas cheer. It's like, yeah, we saw this other guy fucking your wife uh, at the Christmas party. Okay. And I love how Berg is right there toasting him and all this. He's it's a scumbag. Oh. Par excellence. Berg is a scumbag. The guy who's bringing in the money seems to be a scumbag. Talking about this girl with these big tits and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, man. And there's like a lot of those weird, like, oh, I'd like to get in her box. Like those kind of lines in this movie. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're really just showing me your character. With I things. believe those characters and the deliveries. I also, I love Louise's t-shirts. <laughs> like a uh, penalty for early withdrawal. <laughs> Bankers do it with interest. I, I mean, those things are just so tacky, but I don't know. This movie has like a weird sense. Like it's, it's almost like a the movie has a weird sense of humor. Cause that almost seems like, like a parody. Like who would wear that if you work at a bank? But like, but it, other parts, like it's not, the movie is definitely not a parody. And it's like very serious and tense, but yeah, just like odd little moments of levity that's like unexpected. And I, 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 I really love that, uh, you know, the atmosphere it creates with, with those elements. You're totally right about the levity or the, just the fact that it does have a sense of humor. And, uh, and I think talking about Reichel at the beginning and does Miles think he's weak. I think that's kind of played for laughs in a way as, as well, isn't it? And, and I wonder if the audience is meant to sort of think he's weak as well because he's not going to do anything too major is he and then of course we see him in the sauna um so but no i i do i love that as well those t-shirts are brilliant uh they could they could definitely bring out a range of uh, of t-shirts one of these film companies these t-shirt companies that brings out movie t-shirts to jump ahead briefly but you're because you're talking about this reichel like you know you know strong weak thing a moment that i had to rewind earlier this morning is toward the end of the movie um when Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould have this meeting to sort of talk about, you know, the final handoff of the money. And Elliot Gould is just like, you know, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. And Christopher Plummer's like a little quiet. And I, I just, I, I had to rewind to watch just to be like, 
Is Christopher Plummer scared of Elliot Gould in that moment? Does he believe Elliot Gould is actually going to do this? And I guess this comes back to this idea of role-playing that we've been talking about. Like, has Elliot Gould actually become somebody that would scare Reichel? And I I just love the fact that the scene leaves it a little bit... It it doesn't say. There's there's something unspoken. That little amount of mystery. And I, I, I think it's smart for the movie to do that and for the actors to make that choice. It feels like Miles genuinely cared about Elaine and that when Reichel kills her and kills her so violently and leaves her head in Miles's fish tank. I mean, talk, you know, we talked about violation of his space that violates everything. We've seen Reichel kill his prize angel fish and now he has murdered all of these fish and left this woman's head in his tank. And then again, we have to have that moment of Miles coming in and cleaning up after that murder and disposing of her body. And he's so cold and calculating about it, but you also have that moment of like, is he going to get caught trying to dump this body? And then again, he's so super smart by dumping the body. They've been talking about how they're going to build the bank as a separate structure, and they're going to have all these, you know, this huge amount of concrete around the vault and all this stuff, and that he dumps her body there. Basically, again, he's hidden the money in his own bank. Now he's hiding the body in the bank that is yet to be super smart. And then, yeah, that scene of those two together, because this kind of reminds me a little bit of um, like Star Trek two or Star Trek six, which also had Christopher Plummer in there. This whole idea of these characters squaring off against each other, but not really seeing each other very often. I know like, Khan and Kirk are ever never actually in the same place. You do have the scenes of Miles and Rankel in the same place, but so much of their communication is through the phone or where they can't necessarily talk directly to one another. Like in the bank, there's the whole, like, he knows what Rankel is going to do in the first time and is able to fuck him over because of that. And then he basically knows the second time when Rankle comes in, now dressed as a woman, what's going to happen. And I like that Miles is just like, you came in too early, critiquing his performance. Like, you came in too early, there are too many people in this bank, and then that he starts to put on that public fight about things and ends up... Literally fucking over, <laughs> fucking over Rankle there. And, you know, talking about the sexuality of this film, I mean, Rankle finally gets his gun off, manages to shoot Elliot Gould, but, you know, he shoots him in a, uh, you know, the, the famous shoulder shot so that he's not going to die or anything. But man, I love that really at the end of the day, Miles outsmarts this guy twice and that he proves he's the better chess player and manages to fuck over wrinkle with this whole thing. And then even wrinkles final words of, he gave me the bank's money and I love the, <laughs> the security guard. Well, of course he gave you the bank's money. He's not going to give you his own. I'm like, Oh, that was nice. <laughs> and that, that look on uh, wrinkles face when uh, he <laughs> realizes that is just, I think, the moment of the, f- almost the moment of the film for me. Just the, the realization that, oh, fuck. <laughs> he got me. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Just that look. I don't know how many times he did that or if that was the first, the one and only time, but it, it was, it was beautiful. It's a very neat ending, isn't it? And, and just yet another surprise. There's just so many little surprises 
because it's all small things that happen. As we've said many times, it's a small film, but within that world, it's quite a big thing to happen that he's, he has conned him and he's given him that just when he throws over that bit of paper and he picks it up and he's, Oh no. I did your handwriting. Pretty good imitation, right? Yeah. I did it all from memory. I love it. I was just like, sticks him right there. And I love how Renkel's trying to run up the down escalator. So it's just like this impossible task of him going up there and he finally falls and fails. And then when uh, they're taking miles out of the bank on the stretcher, they're going up the right elevator. And we didn't talk about how um, Susanna York actually figures things out. Like she manages to put all of these pieces together finally. And she's the one that brings the suitcase the briefcase with all the money out and then basically it's like if you're in for a penny you're in for a pound kind of thing like you are now stuck with me you know she's the new partner but i think miles is pretty happy to have her as a partner as opposed to wrinkle of course going up the the escalator yeah that is just a, a really it's just a tragic moment and although again we we are he's the bad guy and we want him to be defeated it's still, there's just something really tragic about him running up the wrong steps whilst being shot and everyone watching him as well. I really loved that moment. It kind of felt for him as well, bizarrely, even though we shouldn't. Well, both of you guys mentioned this whole idea of like watching this movie for multiple times and how you forget how things are going to happen. Like, does the security guard get shot? Those kind of things. Even though I've seen this movie probably five, six times now, I forget when Miles ends up giving Elaine one of the keys for the safety deposit box. I'm just like, man, that is a major mistake. Like she isn't that trustworthy. She lied to you in order to get into your life. You know that she's working with Renkel in a sense or in a way that he's the one that sent you to him. And then it's just like, okay, is that how the movie's going to end? They're going to go back to the safety deposit box. He's going to open it up and there's going to be a note from Renkel inside of there or from Elaine. Like she's the one that gets away, like cut to, you know, the Caribbean and it's her on a lounge chair ordering another drink kind of thing. And it's just her alone without Gould next to her or is Gould next to her? Like what, how is this thing going to end? So when she ends up getting killed, you're just like, oh, fuck, where's that key? And I do like that she puts the key on the chessboard, that she ends up being a good person and manages to not give over the information to Renkel and that she leaves that key as a clue, well, as a clue, but leaves the key on the chessboard, the one place that she knows for sure that Gould is going to look. And apparently Renkel didn't. You know, Renkel is not the best chess player against Gould. I mean, he ultimately is the one that wins the match. I guess it was tennis in Strangers on a Train. It's more chess in this one. Yeah, that's a really interesting moment when he gives her the key. It's It seems very genuine at that moment that he he actually does trust her. Because there, there would be no advantage to giving it to her. Like, there's it, it does. It's not a chess move. It's just like, no, nah, I finally trust you. And I, I love how much she just needles Christopher Plummer. Like after she realizes, you know, this guy's a total piece of shit scumbag. And she's just telling him everything about her relationship with Gould and just like she's twisting the knife with every word. Yeah, I can't say she deserved what she got, but I'm not surprised she got what she got after just kind of being dumb about the way that she was taunting him. It's not, it wasn't smart. She definitely did not deserve that at all. Um, and even 
maybe, maybe both of you know more about this, but I think the way she's killed, which is just excessively cruel, that Daryl Duke didn't want that in the movie, if I remember correctly. No, he either left the project or was kicked off the project, and then that was Hanson that ended up directing that. So Gould does talk a little bit more about that in the interview, thank goodness. So speaking of, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Elliot Gould right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity 
for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. You seem to be super busy in 1977-76. There were so many projects that you were involved in, even before you got to The Silent Partner. Can you tell me a little bit about where you were in your career at that point? 1977 was a rather prolific year. I shot Capricorn 1 in 1977. Oh, wait a minute. 1977? Yeah, you're going to like this. I believe I shot Capricorn 1. And then uh, prior to uh, making The Silent Partner, I co-hosted a primetime network presentation show, the Photoplay Awards, with Angie Dickinson. And the, the remarkable thing about it was that after our last rehearsal, management came to me and said, Alfred Hitchcock is here to claim his award during the show. Can he sit in your room, being that your room is closest to the stage? And I said, naturally. And so that was uh, the first time that I met Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, so when I came back to my room, there was Alfred Hitchcock with someone minding him. And I said to him, are you going to make another film? And he said to me, and I quote, I'm toying with one now, he said. I said, he said, I'm toying with one now, but I don't know if the audience still wants my fantasy. To which I responded, without a doubt. And then I spoke with him uh, for a, a very briefly. He had seen the silent. No, he had seen uh, the long goodbye and he uh, liked it. And then in 77, of course, I was going to Toronto to participate in making The Silent Partner. And I knew I wanted it to be a genre film like Hitchcockian. And then we, we that's when we made The Silent Partner. Afterwards, I made uh, another film. But let's let's just work up to and including The Silent Partner. From what I understand, you and Daryl Duke had the same agent, and that's how you two connected on this film. Is that correct? Correct. But I remember I wasn't committed to it and that uh, I, I and I really I, I very much appreciate Daryl. Uh, we had talked about making more films together. So we had a meeting in the boardroom of CMA or ICM, whatever they were called at that point. Jack Gillardi was the agent for Daryl and for me. And it was just Daryl and me in the room. I was not committed. I'm sure I'd read the script, uh, the uh, excellent script by Curtis Hansen. I also knew that it had been based on a Scandinavian novel. Think of a number. So Daryl said to me in this meeting with just the two of us, he said, I don't want to see any of you in the movie. And I thought, is there someone else here? I mean, who, who are you talking to? What do you mean? A, I'm not committed to you. A, double A, I'm not committed to the picture. And for you to say you don't want to see any of me in the picture, in this, you obviously have a preconceived notion of me and my work. At any rate, it all worked out and I was able to participate and make the movie. 
What did he mean by, I don't want to see any of you in here? Did you come with baggage or preconceived notions as far as what an Elliot Gould is? No, then I want to slap you in the face for wanting to work with me and not knowing me or not uh, sitting down or what I don't want to see any of you in the picture is a little uh, a little glib. Of course, I come with baggage. I'll tell you right now, you know, I've got a, a, a blue, a very nice blue hoodie on and I've got a scarf wearing my underwear. I mean, eventually, uh, Daryl wanted me to do soda cracker for him, uh, which was the new mounted policeman uh, without a horse. But uh, to get back to with Daryl, yeah, very smart of you. So therefore, to talk in the meeting, I don't want to see any of you in the picture. I guess that's where he started, started to engage me. When Ingmar Bergman chose me to make uh, his uh, first English-speaking picture and play his part, uh, and I read the script, and I thought it's uh, it, you know I mean I don't have experience in these things. I I mean I don't have baggage. I have personal baggage. That's my life. I have a heart. I have my lungs. I've got my kidneys. I'm still all together. And I don't deny my experiences and I don't deny uh, my lack of judgment and perspective. Perhaps I'll write it down on a page and see if it's interesting enough to share it with uh, the world other than the work. So Daryl Duke saying that to me, there was no problem. I, I did adore Daryl and, and the whole history of it was uh, very interesting because it did work out. And because on this level, I have no baggage. Dick Cabot recently said to me, and not on his show, I had already uh, done on his show and I'd been cast off of his show. Uh, do you know uh, a film of that I participated in called Busting? Oh, yes. The Hyams film. Yeah, right. His first directorial assignment that he, he wrote the script. So Hyam saw me on the Cabot show and cast me. Cabot said to me in recent times, you're one of two or maybe three pick people I've ever known who's made it. I said to uh, Cabot, by made it, do you mean transcended identity in relation to the business of this industry? Yes, he said. And I thought, gee, where did that come from? You know, I'm not formally educated. I didn't go to college. I graduated high school. I had a healthy intelligence quota, I was told, when they uh, measured those things. I believe in nature. I believe in uh, spirit. And I said, thank you. My interpretation was uh, transcending identity in relation to the business of, of this industry. Yes, he said. And I said, well, thank you, but we have to keep working at it because the industry has no conscience and it will get us to grind ourselves into sawdust. We have to be aware the industry doesn't care. There's no conscience. Actually, the mind doesn't care. Therefore, I look uh, deeper into the silent partner uh, to know to know it and understand it more. I was never crazy about the end of the picture. I thought it was facile. But, I mean, I was very happy with the opportunity and, and also to work in Toronto and have a, a, a great uh, cinematographer when, in, in late August of 1977 when I was in the office of uh, one of the producers, Garth. Drabinsky, 
on a late August evening uh, where the sky was red and it was dark. And I looked out the window with uh, Billy Williams, not knowing I wasn't looking for anything, but I was fascinated by the light uh, and by the color. And Billy and I looked out and I could feel that we were seeing the same thing. And I knew that we had a movie. Uh, also, the great uh, jazz pianist, uh, Oscar Peterson, this was the first picture he ever scored. As I was then uh, on my way in 1978 to Rhodos in the Greek islands to participate in a picture that was photographed by Gil Turner, the guy who photographed Dr. Strangelove, and where I was able to meet and work with David Niven. The great, great David Niven, one of the sweetest, most wonderful human beings. I had to stop in Toronto to do post-production on The Silent Partner. They showed me the picture, and uh, there were some things in the picture that I, I, I didn't know. Where they put the beheading, they put the, the head of Celine Lomez in the fish tank. They had let Daryl go, and Curtis Hansen took the picture over. I was very upset, and I didn't understand that. I called Daryl, who was in uh, Vancouver, where he lived, and Daryl said to me that the, his cut of the picture, he felt, was like a minute or so away from what we wanted. And so I, I felt, after them showing me their cut with the additional stuff that Curtis put into the picture when they gave him the directorship. I paid my own way from Toronto back to Vancouver to see Daryl and to see his cut. To me, it was relatively the same. Uh, but like I said about Dick Cabot and no conscience and where ambition can't interfere, Daryl was really pure. When I finally then made my way back to Europe and went to Paris, for a moment to meet a great director named Alexander Petrovich, who, who had made, I even met Happy Gypsies, and also made a Thomas Mann's group portrait with woman. I met him in the lobby of the uh, George Sank, and we bumped into Steven Spielberg. And that was the time when they were getting ready to release or about to release Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And so Petrovich, uh, Spielberg, and I sat down together. Uh, how's that for a meal? Sounds like it was probably pretty memorable. Well, it is. This this life. I mean, we sh uh, each each of us should know how memorable our life in the present is. How did you find the character of Miles Cullen? How do you approach a character and then inhabit them? I never have. That's what part of what acting was uh, to me, to find my character in the text, in the composition, with the people, with the te technicians in relation to the subject. Miles Cullen was a frustrated uptight chess player who then found his release and freedom by living the story of this picture. He was the keeper of the vault. That was his job, the keeper of the vault. Interesting. 
it's almost a picture that could have been done a couple of centuries before, as far as what the story is. I've never really thought of it. I do know that when the police came into the bank to interview all of us and me, and it was very tense and extremely interesting because after all, I'm the only one who knew what was going on. And so this is where we had introduced John Candy, the wonderful, great, charming, lovely John Candy. And his name in the script was Simonson. And so when the people, the other tellers are behind me and I'm uh, talking to the policeman who's coming to question all of us in the script, I say, Simonson. And I thought, no, what's Simonson? He should have a first name. Now, what, what would his first name be? And we're on the set and we're, we're, we're preparing to shoot. And, and I said, what could be, what could be John Candy's first name? And I thought, Raul. I thought that was so funny that he would be Raul. And so when I said Raul, I started to laugh. And here we have a very, very tense scene. And, it, you know, it took a while. But Raul. Here, I, I give you Raul. Raul Simonson, right? How was John Candy to work with? I mean, he was so young and so early in his career. Oh, he was great. I'd heard about John Candy. I mean, he was just wonderful. But I tell you, I, I had wanted to cast uh, Mick Jagger uh, in the role of uh, the silent partner in, in Christopher Plummer's part. Uh, and I mean, again, I have nothing to say. I mean, but uh, I'm really close. But they cast, lucky for me, because uh, Christopher Plummer gave me a touch of class uh, in in that, and also with uh, Susanna York, I, I think I'd worked with her, or Altman had worked with her. Altman did images with her, and of course, I'm a great devotee of A Man for All Seasons and Fred Zinnemann. I can hardly talk about her; it takes my breath away. She's the daughter. Oh my God, makes me want to weep. Uh, there you have more to chew on. You mentioned that Miles is a chess player, which, ironically enough, Philip Marlowe is a chess player as well. But Miles doesn't have anybody to play with. And I think that's so central to that character as he's looking to play. So he has no relationship. have to make a relationship with his uh, a deeper self in him. I tell very few people, I, but I can share and I have to be careful because I'm so transparent. And in my process to attain honesty and truth so as I don't have to think. I tell younger people, very few people, but share. I, I believe that there's uh, nothing of value other than what we have to share and that it's one thing to share goodness and accomplishment and it's another thing to share a problem. And once people are willing and capable of communicating directly like this, we can then see that no one of us can have a problem that one of us didn't have before. But with that in mind, I share that I don't lie, I don't steal, and I don't cheat. And, and, and I lied, and I stole, and I cheated. But thank 
goodness, I was able to catch myself like a puppy or a kitten because I couldn't be so transparent if I had anything to hide. So it's embarrassing. And then when a lifelong friend said to me, what did you steal? What did you steal? So therefore, I said to this lifelong friend when he said, what did you steal? And I said, you cocksucker, you, you're, you're going to judge me besides your heart. What did I steal besides a, a Tootsie Roll or a, a pretzel from the candy store? What did I steal? At least I didn't sell you life insurance. There you have it. And for people to look at one another, you know, look, look inside yourself and, and see that. So that, that, that part and and that possibly was in terms of, well, Curtis Hansen wrote a terrific script that there have been people, including Quentin Tarantino, who through time have been interested in remaking The Silent Partner. And The Silent Partner, I mean, it can be. I mean, I, I what do I, I hold my family, uh, my children and nature holy, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, so, again, I'm so grateful to have been able to uh, endure and uh, survive. If memory serves, the Eaton Center in Toronto was open just a little bit before you guys started shooting there, if not right around that exact same time. How was that shooting in Toronto at that time? Perfect. It was great. It was just great. Uh, we had a, uh, there. There is a Joel. I mean, the, the, the two guys who supplied uh, money for us to make the picture were Carol Loco. It was Andy Viner and Mario Kassar. And uh, they have had a history. Uh, But uh, I can't think of Joel. Joel was a producer. And also, he may have been production manager. His name would come to me. I, I, I have it. I think it's uh, Joel Michaels. That's right. I'd, I'd love to say hello to him because I remember we were working through the night once and they didn't have food for the crew. And they said, okay, you've got uh, an hour or 45 minutes go and, and nothing was open. And I was really a bit taken back. And I said, you have to have hot soup for the crew. It's cold out here. You've got to have to keep the crew warm, keep the crew comfortable. I mean, and then what comes to mind is this horrific shooting with uh, Alec Baldwin, you know, I mean, uh, and, and that, uh, cinematographer and anything can happen i mean anything can happen so you bring to mind it's such what a wonderful time for me to be able to talk with you about the silent partner that's great you mentioned that you talked a little bit with oscar peterson about the soundtrack and i was curious what he thought about the final no 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 i bumped into him in the white elephant in london uh, and uh, probably it was 1978 because, uh, speaking of Hitchcock, in 1978, I got an assignment to participate in remaking Alfred Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes, one of his masterpieces. And we did it. Did, did you ever see it? Do you know it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You and Sybil Shepherd, if memory serves. No. Well, of course, bless Sybil. She was great. I loved Sybil. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich didn't want to let her see uh, Ingmar Bergman's magic flute uh, with me, but Sybil was great. No, the, the, uh, let's see, the magic was uh, Angela Lansbury. And we speak. I mean, she's 97 now. I mean, just 
beyond belief she's so good. She is just amazing. She's so terrific. And that, that was interesting. And that, too, I found a, a cinematographer who was hired was Douglas Slocum. Douglas Slocum, Dougie talked like that. Not to, I'm not scoffing him because my father, a stammer too, but the, I would call the Dougie, Dougie, very Slocum. And he said to me, we were at Pinewood Studios in 1978, and that's around the time I'll revisit Oscar Peterson when Dougie said to me off the stage at the studio, how did you escape? He said, and I said, well, thanks for the compliment, but there is is no escape and how I endured and survived was uh, by simply by uh, uh, staying in the dark by hiding hiding in the dark it was so frightening so uh, I bumped into uh, Oscar Peterson uh, I was with Herb Gardner and we bumped into uh, uh, Oscar and I was able to talk with Oscar who had seen the film I said was it worth it I mean did, did your experience uh, was it validated by uh, or the result of the film did you like it? He said he did. He said he did. The White Elephant. That's good. The White Elephant. That was the name of the restaurant. Uh, it's such a good score. It's like, uh, just that music is so good. I have to really revisit it because I don't. I get, I'm so deeply involved and I don't want to fall in love with anything, you know? I mean, I mean, I love, I love, all I care about is us and Hitchcock. Oh no, off of, uh, there in 78 is when I was able to spend real quality time with Hitchcock after I got back from shooting The Lady Vanishes. How was that hanging out with him? Magic. I told you I had met him in 77. Then I started to write him after I, I had met him and I knew I was going to shoot to, to participate in The Silent Partner. And so I started to write to him. And then in 78... When we were on location in Bavaria for The Lady Vanishes, uh, Roderick Mann ha had said to me that central intelligence in what we thought was going to be Hitchcock's last picture, The Short Night, which was never made, but is published, central intelligence was going to be British again, as usual. I thought, well, I could think it now. It's now or never for America. I better make contact with the old man when I get back. I didn't have, I don't have anybody's numbers or anything like that, but I knew Ernie Lehman who wrote the screenplay to uh, North by Northwest and he was like a friend. I called through the switchboard at Universal and asked for Ernie Lehman. And he, not only was he not there, the operator asked me why I was calling. And I said, I wanted to talk with him about this short night. The operator said to me that it's evident to management that uh, Mr. Hitchcock's not going to be able to do that picture in relation to his, uh, his physical condition. This is the operator talking to me, but he's still here. He's in his office. Would you like to speak with him directly? And I said, uh, naturally. And he got on the phone. And Hitchcock picks up the phone. And I said to him, you never asked me to lunch. And Hitchcock said, how's Friday and fish? And I said, very well. And he then sang. 
It won't be a stylish luncheon. I can't afford a munchin. He said, we'll be dining in my dining room, in my building, in my office at Universal. And I said, can I bring my wife? And so that was my uh, my first meeting with Hitchcock. It wasn't fish the first time. It was plebeian steak. I really like Celine Lomez, and she just brought such a pleasure to watching her in that role. What was she like to work with? Fun. She was great. I mean, I didn't hang out with anyone. I know that one time I sang, I, I sang Try to Remember from the Fantastics uh, to Susanna York uh, on the set at the sound truck, right where the sound department was. And she said to me, she had thought this was going to be like just a job. I said, with me, it's not, it's never just a job because it's my life. And not to be uh, pretentious and uh, not uh, to be imposing, but it's, it's my life and it's the only time. I mean, it's all I know how to do. And so, uh, I sang Try to Remember and then uh, she got me to, uh, just put it on tape for her because I had done the Fantastics with Liza Minnelli and I knew it very well. I seem to remember Siskel and Ebert considered the silent partner to be a, a sleeper that people didn't necessarily see it when it first came out. I mean, they had no, no distribution. And when the Paramount wanted to buy it, the picture cost a little more than $2 million. So I understand or stood and uh, the uh, uh, executives at uh, Paramount said to Garth Drabinsky, we'll give you half of the money that you spent on the picture and we'll put the other half into prints and advertising. And Garth Drabinsky said, no, I want all of my money back. And then my understanding, which is pure in this area, uh, was that the uh, same executive said, we'll give you half of your money back and put the other half into prints and advertising. And so we never had distribution. And the picture, I know it played in Chicago uh, a lot, and also people from Argentina. It played in different places, but it never had significant uh, distribution. And around that time, there was a great public, public I think it's all a science, uh, Mike. Uh, his name was Warren Cowan. Rogers and Cowan were a very significant public relations firm. And I never got get along with them or agents because it's, it's their, it's your business. It's not my business, but I'm, I'm understanding now and I'm delighted that I didn't destroy myself altogether. And so at that point around the silent partner, because evidently it was somewhat recognized, uh, but never uh, could succeed under the conditions that it was put on uh, on them, which uh, I, I, I touched on it a little bit in this. Uh, Warren Cowan said to me, how would you like to have your hands and feet put into cement at Grauman's Chinese? And I said, no, thank you. And of course, my first wife, uh, Barbara, said to me, you're stupid and I don't trust you. And I said, oh, 
Oh, Barbara, because this feels so good. I said, Barbara, I said, I never told you I was smart, but believe me, I'm certainly not stupid. And I find that most people cannot trust what they don't understand. And she said to me, can you explain that to me? And I said to her, no, you must find out for yourself. Each one of us is different in our own ways. So you've never had your your hands and feet at Grauman's? Have you? Have, do you have a star on uh, Hollywood Boulevard? No, no, I have to organize the money for that. No, I don't have a star. Again, let me see. What do I have? The way you wear your hat, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. Oh, no, they can't take that away from me. Hitchcock said to me, it's all music, he said. But uh, if one person thinks they have to make themselves more outstanding than the rest, uh, it throws off uh, uh, the symphony. I can't see my picture. He said, uh, but to realize that like one person wrote each every note for each instrumentalist, but everybody's got to be playing together. And then my mind at that point, talking with himself, with Hitchcock, went to Beethoven's Ninth, which was thought to be too complicated to be played. And by the time it was played, Beethoven was uh, a deaf and was sitting in the pit uh, with, uh, in the, with the orchestra with his shoes off to feel the vibrations. So I was thinking of Beethoven's Ninth, and then Hitchcock said to me, Take Beethoven's Ninth, and I thought we're on the same page. That's great. I, I can I can really learn. You know, I can. I, I mean, you know, and uh, I mean, I have to if I'm going to really go all the way. I have to be prepared to die. What is your relationship with uh, Jim Henson and the Muppets? Because I know you were in the oh. Muppet movie and also in that Muppet special that they had. The Muppet special? You mean out to lunch? The prime time? Uh, uh, ABC, uh, out to lunch where, uh, my Jim Henson. I love Jim Henson. Jim Henson and I, I have, uh, oh my goodness. I mean, and again, I insisted that Lou Grade, who produced the Muppet movie, I insisted that he put me into it because my kids love the Muppets so much. And of course, I, I first saw them, I, I, the Muppets on, uh, Saturday Night Live. And, and so, uh, I, my, the character I play, I introduce Miss Piggy. Uh, you know, it's the first time that Kermit sees Miss Piggy. Uh, and Jim Henson was an angel. He was so nice. I love Jim Henson. And uh, so then, uh, you know, uh, what, what can I, will I be able to hear this? Uh, and yeah, I will send you a link to this when it goes live. I've enjoyed this, and it, it feels to me like you really followed. And even when I go stream of consciousness, it's it's related. You know, the the two things that saved my life, besides my mother and the women who bore my children, were a, a movie camera and philosophy. And the movie camera uh, was in the third film that I participated in, uh, which was Paul Mazursky's directorial debut of uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And, and each of the four principles 
had uh, a fantasy. And my wife in the picture, and I don't think that this scene is in it, uh, but was, of, of course, she was so uh, wonderfully played by uh, Diane Cannon. Uh, her fantasy was that every man in her mind wanted to dance with her. So Mazursky staged a scene at Columbia Pictures on a soundstage with 350 male extras and me and her. And so we were doing this whole this whole scene and we had to break for union regulations. I'm a unionist. And so they turned the lights uh, uh, down uh, uh, and everybody had to break for 10 minutes or so. And as usual, I had no place to go. And I just stayed there and it was just me and the camera. And I realized, oh, oh, the camera doesn't give me problems. I give me problems. The camera doesn't promote me. It doesn't lie to me. It doesn't manipulate me. It just reports what I do. And I could see it clearly and, and objectively and in focus, which that was my first objective relationship in, uh, in existence. And then philosophy, the Greek, the Greek, uh, a definition of philosophy. I believe, is for the love of knowledge. And through my experience, I'm so grateful for the, all of the opportunities. Ben Affleck asked me if everything that I've done and all the time that I've been doing this, that I, if I had ever done anything that I was sorry, I did. And I said, uh, and this is the only time Benny and I ever talked. I'm friendly with Casey. I said, uh, Great question. Give me a moment. My answer is no. That would be so disloyal. Sometimes things don't work, but I mean, we do the best we can. And there's so many people who are dependent on our work to make their livelihood. If I did something and then I was sorry I did it, I mean, I want to learn from everything. Sometimes it's great. What a privilege to fail. I mean, how we look at it, I never want to fail, but I want to grow. I want to understand. And part of our problems as a culture, as a species, is we think we can stay the same. And so we build these statues. Oh, my gosh. So that's great, Mike. Is this the second time we've ever spoken? It's the second time official interview, but we've spoken many times before. Well, that's great. The timing is perfect. I'm deeply touched, and I hope uh, that uh, you and your audience can accept me and tolerate me as simply being one of us uh, who's gotten here. And we were talking about The Silent Partner, and we've mentioned a few times before that this was based on a book and that there were actually two adaptations of this book beforehand. A lot of people know about the 1969 film, and I'm going to try my best uh, Danish here, 
Tank Pa Etal, or Think of a Number, and then it was also directed in 1972 as a TV movie called Der Amateur, which, uh, according to my linguistic skills with German, translates as The Amateur. We might need to call in an expert, but... um, I know a little German. He's sitting over there. And I found it really weird because I was also trying to get a hold of Anders Bodelsen, the man who wrote the book, and who also, like, his books have been adapted a ton over the years, and he's won the Martin Beck Award and all these things. He just died. We are recording this on the 24th of October. He just died October 17th. Talk about weird timing. Well, I was reading the book. I Googled and saw that he had passed, like, on the day that I was reading it, and it's so strange. Colin, what did you think of the book? I loved it. Um, as I said, sort of my first thought was, you know, kind of surprised because I'd seen Silent Partner several times. So I, I was sort of familiar with the atmosphere and the characters. And as I mentioned earlier, the first thing I thought of was Patricia Highsmith because the main character in the book is seems almost a little sociopathic. Like he really has no connections to other people. He doesn't have that sort of like humanistic, you know, humanizing quality of like the fish. It goes much deeper into this sort of like mental, like hard on he gets. Cause he, when he figures out that there's going to be this robbery, he really gets into like figuring out who it is following the guy. He becomes much more of a criminal than Elliot Gould does in this movie. And I, I, I thought, I, I like both versions. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, a much darker character. And the, um, villain I thought was, you know, less menacing. And I, I thought it was interesting that, you know, sort of by the end of the book, like the, 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 the bank teller seems a little bit badder and, and more villainous than the actual villain. I really enjoyed the Dutch version up to a point, up until about halfway through it. Uh, and I guess it's probably got something to do with the fact that I know the silent partner so well and it wasn't quite what I expected. And I did want to see, of course, where it went to, but the direction it went, I, I wasn't really, I didn't, didn't quite, uh, I didn't believe it, really. That ending um, is, it keeps much more in, it, it, it adheres closely to the original novel. Yeah, I do remember. It's been years since I've read Think of a Number, but I do remember that they end up, what, in Morocco? Uh, so it's isn't kind it of... Tunisia, I thought? Okay, that could be. I, I'm, I'm one or two countries over. If anybody has not read the book and wants to and doesn't want it spoiled, please come back. Read the book and come back to us, as you say at the beginning, Mike. But um, the book, you know, sort of has the, 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 the structure of the silent partner until about two thirds of the way through, which is when the bank teller and the Elaine character get together. And then it shifts to several years later when the uh, criminal gets out of prison and follows the bank teller as he's going on vacation to this home that he's bought with the money with the other woman. And there's a detective who's following the criminal. So you have this like multiple cat and mouse chase going on at the same time. Um, and it ends in a, you know, much, you know, darker, you know, uh, twist where you see the, uh, bank teller, you know, actually, you know, committing murder and, um, it ends on a on a more sardonic. I don't I don't want to give away the very ending, but um, it it it's it's unsettling, you know, with things left unresolved. 
it reminds me a little bit of the end of Manhunter, the whole idea of the Tooth Fairy coming back and attacking the family in the home. It's like now, like, the criminal has followed him all the way to Tunisia and is trying to do that. And and to your point, the cops in The Silent Partner, like, I listened to one of the commentary tracks on The Silent Partner, or the commentary track, and they kept talking about how, like, oh, well, the cops, they know something is up, but they just don't know exactly what is up. It doesn't feel like that to me in The Silent Partner. They feel very clueless to me, and it feels like this, the cops are just there as a mechanism, and that Miles uses them or doesn't use them when he needs to. The whole idea of him calling the cops when he plants the van out in front of Renkel's house. Okay, great. But then they have that lineup of all the criminals and he could finger Renko right there and be like, Oh, that's the guy that came into the bank. But it's like, he knows that by doing that, Renko's going to be sent away for a long, long time, but he doesn't want that. It feels like he just wants him out in a certain amount of time. And then he's like, no, no, I don't recognize any of these men though. That number two. And I love how he does that. That number two, he did look very familiar. And then the cops are like, you know, correcting him. They're like, well, of course he looks familiar. We showed you a photo of him. He's like, oh, okay. Just like, again, that play acting thing that he's doing. But yeah, it's like he, he's so smarter in that version, in the silent partner than in think of a number that if, you know, I, I agree with you. He does feel a lot more sociopathic in the silent partner. I guess it does feel more Highsmith in that way, in the way that those characters in, in her books are much more sociopathic and in, in in the silent partner feels more like he's cunning than uh, a, a lunatic. Cause the book also doesn't have that redeeming relationship between um, him and the Susanna York character. And even the relationship with Elaine in the book, the Elaine character um, it's purely, we have money, we bought property. Like there's no sense of like shared love. And at the end, when things start to fall apart, she's just like, fuck it, I'm gone. When it gets to that halfway point, and or is it maybe just it's about halfway, maybe just after when things do go off in a different direction, and as you say, they, they go off uh, off on holiday together, or or maybe they're escaping forever again. With with the subtitles not being quite right, it's hard to tell if they're if they're going away forever or just a wee holiday. That's the bit where for me it just kind of loses it a little bit, and I mean I suppose none of it is believable, but it certainly silent silent partner does make it feel a bit more believable. Uh, and then in this one, maybe it's just kind of loses it a bit for me. But no, I think it was a, it was a very fantastic attempt. And, and I think, I suppose if I'd only ever seen that version, maybe I'd feel a bit different as it is. It's, uh, it's, it's not quite, it's not a remake, is it? It's more just the, the second version of the, the, or the American, the Canadian version, sorry. The international version. Yeah, sure. Think of a Number was written during a time when there was a real renaissance of crime fiction that was happening. I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast will remember, you know, the Millennium series, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The, that was kind of a, a new renaissance of crime fiction that we were getting over here in the States that was being translated from, I think that was Swedish. I could be completely wrong because I I used to mix up Sweden and Switzerland all the time just because of the swa, but, uh, and Swahili. No, uh, just those two things. That's Swahili. 
in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a real renaissance of crime fiction that was coming over from uh, Denmark. And I mentioned Martin Beck, the Martin Beck Award. That was based on, I can't remember the two writers, and I'm not going to attempt to say their names. Um, but they gave us the book that uh, Man on the Rooftop, I think it is. And then definitely The Laughing Policeman was one of the series of these Martin Beck books. And so this was kind of part of that uh, renaissance as well, as far as the, this crime fiction that was going on. Um, so yeah, it, I highly recommend you check that out. And then it was just kind of natural that uh, the book would be adapted for a movie because there were a lot of uh, crime films that were coming out based on these really taut thrillers that were happening. I was very pleased when I was able to see, I know the subtitles on Think of a Number suck, but at least there are subtitles as opposed to the 1972 version. They're amateur. The director of that, Rainer Erler, actually sent me a copy of that film years ago because otherwise it was just impossible to find. 1972 made-for-TV version of the same story for German television and uh, Erler it's funny because the director of Think of a Number very much specialized in TV movies as well. He had a few theatrical films, but when it came to Erler, I think almost everything that he directed was a TV movie. And I would love to see more of him because I thought he handled the story very well, though it's a little bloated. I think that the movie itself, even without commercials, runs two Two hours. hours. yeah. Yeah, so it's a little too much. There's a little too much stuff there. We talked about how the silent partner, every single scene counts. This one, maybe not so much. I really liked the style of Dear Amateur. Like I, I feel like there's a lot of like handheld stuff. The camera was like kind of like really like in their face. It almost had like a little bit like a docudrama feel. And I, 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 I thought that was great. I like that the criminal is younger and it almost feels like the, the bank teller, the Miles Cullen type character seems to be older and wiser and just sees this younger guy and is able to fuck him over because he is younger and inexperienced and that he figures it out so quickly. And Jonathan, you mentioned the whole thing, like following the guy on the motorcycle. I mean, that's in both of these versions is the whole idea of Miles really being even more of an investigator and doing that upfront work and finding everything out about this guy before the robbery even takes place. Feels a little calculated, let's say. I, mean, I like the idea of him following him, but it definitely works better without him doing that. So it's fascinating seeing these two versions, isn't it? The, the sort of alternate path that Miles, Miles in inverted commas, t- takes. I, I agree with you that I, I really like seeing all the different versions and something I walked away having, you know, read the book and compared it. I think this is a great example of an adaptation that's not totally faithful, but makes the right changes for the final form that it takes. Like, I don't, I don't think it really compromised anything from the book. And in fact, I, I, I think in some ways it's sort of improved, but it, it's not just an improvement because it's a total di- different, it, it, it has a different scope. It has a different aim. Um, um, as we were saying, like the first book feels a little more sociopathic and darker. And that's not what they were going for with the silent partner at all. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think it's ex- an example of what a great adaptation should be and can be. In that, that first version of it, the, the, the robbery, he's not wearing a Santa outfit when he does the robbery. I think that is, that is interesting. And I think it works much better in the, in the silent partner. 
a hundred percent. Like I noticed how the guy's selling Christmas trees in the, uh, the dramatur. And I'm like, okay, you're almost there. But like having Santa come in and do the robbery, I mean, that is so visually striking and so great. And then having him dress in drag at the end of the silent partner, I'm like, okay, that's wonderful. Like I love that he never comes in as himself, that he's always doing somebody else, that he's a woman, that he's Santa Claus, and just that visual. And and the people that marketed this film, even though it wasn't necessarily marketed as well in the U.S. as it could have been, um, but the people that did the marketing, they knew what they were doing, having all of these images of Santa Claus with a gun. You know, I was like, this is great. You know, this is around the time of, you know, like your Black Christmases, these kind of things where like Santa is now a psycho killer. And it's basically the same thing that they're doing in this. It's like, here we have Santa Claus with a gun. It's a very, very striking image. And I love when he steals that car. I'm a little surprised that uh, Reichel didn't have a better getaway vehicle going on, but when he steals the car and he's in there and he's just peeling off all the Santa stuff, I'm just like, yeah, this is really good. I, I really appreciate that. I think that might be the first time I could be wrong. I want to say that might be the first time that we see Christopher Plummer without all the makeup and the Santa stuff on. If they don't have that before, it's a great reveal of him to be like, oh, this is the guy. This is going to be our guy that we're going to be following through the rest of the movie is Christopher Plummer. To your point about the lack of a getaway vehicle, you know, it it took me, you know, three or four viewings before it, it sort of dawned on me. I kind of get the feeling that Christopher Plummer is not the baddest criminal that he wants to be in some ways. Like, I think he's a bit of a hustler. Like, you keep talking about his looks and him being like a sexual figure is so important. And I think, you know, it doesn't say what he did to get by, but I bet he was just like a low life criminal that, you know, could manipulate people, do some small crimes, beat up some people. Like, he wasn't intending to make 50K off this bank robber. He probably saw it as like, ah, easy thing. I'm in a costume. Get a few bucks, get out quick. And it escalated to something that even he couldn't handle. Does Elaine not mention at one point that he killed two people before? I totally get what you're saying, and that, that is the impression you would get. So whether she's telling the truth, of course, she could be. Maybe she's embellishing it just to, to make him seem a bit scarier. He could have lied to her, too. He, he certainly lies a lot. <laughs> Though the cops know him, they have he does have a history of something. So it could be the hustling. It could be the murder. I would think they would have brought that up a little bit more. But I find it interesting, too, that the people at the gym all know him. Like, that's, I think, the first time we hear his name is when he's walking out of the sauna. And they're like, you really did it this time, Wrinkle. You know, and like, all of these guys know this dude. Him and his little, you know, black briefs and stuff. <laughs> it's just like, at first I was like, is he naked in the sauna? Is he going to kill her while he's naked? Is this a uh, Eastern Promises type of thing that's going on in here? But he does have the little black briefs that he's doing. He seems like he's very much patron of this gym, very much concerned with his looks and his uh, physicality. And so, yeah, that idea of him being a hustler, rather, uh, whether it is a hustler of I'm doing small crimes or whether it's an actual hustler, like I'm, you know, giving sex for money kind of thing. I could buy either one because damn, he is looking good in this movie. Well, yeah, he is. The makeup really works for him. <laughs> doesn't it? I tried 
years ago to talk to Plummer about this film and I actually got all the way up to the point with his either agent or manager where they were going to set up an interview and it just one of those like all of a sudden all communication stopped and I don't know what it was. And then that was right before it was like the plumber sans, like because he was he's always been or was always acting, but towards the end of his life, I mean he really started to come out with bigger and bigger things. There was the one I think he played a gay character. He was like a guy's gay father or something. And that I wanna say he won an Oscar for or was nominated for, and then there was the whole thing of him taking over for Kevin Spacey, him being a knives out. I mean, what a way to go. I'm I wouldn't be surprised if he did multiple roles after Knives Out because the guy was always working, but that was a great way to go to be remembered for Knives Out as one of your final roles because I I thought he did a wonderful job in that film. I mean the guy he was always so good. Even if he was in shit films, he was really good. And he played a really good Klingon too. Yeah, it would have been fascinating to hear his his take on this film and um, the whole tax shelter thing that we we mentioned. You, you touched on earlier, uh, which is a, a, again is a really interesting part of of Canadian film history. Yeah, it would just be interesting to hear what he thought about that period as well, and and being the token, almost the token Canadian in there um, with the Brit and the uh, the American coming along. I wish we could get a uh, psychic and talk to Daryl Duke from beyond because I've seen this and then I watched Payday the other day. And if you haven't seen Payday, that's fucking good. The uh, country music, sort of like tour movie with a uh, starring Rip Torn written by Don Carpenter, who did a uh, hard rain falling um, really fantastic, fantastic movie. I made a note to watch that. I noticed that it is on a certain video sharing website. Terrible quality. Again, I don't know if you can buy it on Blu-ray, but... No, it's not. It's I, It got a small DVD release. I feel like that's a prime movie for, like... like a tw- I, don't, I don't know if Twilight Time is still around, or, like, Kino Lorber Studio Classics. Like, I, I, I think that movie could have a really nice, you know, revival. Yeah, I am really glad that Silent Partner's out on Kino Lorber, because, yeah, the versions that I saw before weren't as good looking and it just didn't have the respect that it deserved. I was glad that there's a commentary that they've got an interview with Gould on the disc, that there's some contemporary, contemporary, uh, trailers and everything. I was just like, okay, that's good. You know, I wish it was more, of course. Uh, also reminds me that I was trying to speak with, uh, Curtis Hansen back probably around 2011 to talk about this film. Got a little bit of traction with that. And then I was told, Hey, he's a little too sick to talk with you. And then he ended up passing away, you know, not shortly thereafter, but it was one of those like, okay, you know, he's not doing well. So I'm not going to obviously pursue this. And then when he passed away, I think two years later, I was like, okay, I'm not surprised. So he uh, had a rough go at those last couple of years of his life. That's a shame. It is a shame because he was such a powerhouse of writing and directing and looking at some of his like erotic thrillers, like what was it? Bedroom eyes. I think it was. And of course he um, ended up uh, co-writing and directing one of my favorite films of all time, LA confidential, which I love that. The beginning of that is all set around, you know, bloody Christmas. So you've got that Christmas theme playing through it. I mean, okay, go for it, Shane Black. But I do like the Christmas themes of uh, the Silent Partner and LA Confidential a lot as well. 
Yeah, the Silent Partner definitely deserves. Uh, I've not got that Blu-ray edition, but I th- I'd like to get it. But I do wonder if there's still maybe one more edition still to come from some other label, maybe like Indicator. Uh, of course, with many of the cast and crew maybe not being here anymore, that is that is going to be tricky. But but just going back, you know, the Tax Shelter stuff, Toronto, maybe modern having some sort of scene comparison, Toronto then and now would be what is. I'd love to see where that building is that uh, Elaine was. Was <laughs> was put into the um, uh, the foundations off. Wonder what that is now. Probably just a an office block. But it'd be nice to see. It was interesting too that this was one of the early. Who was it? Uh, Kassar and I can't remember the other gentleman's name that ended up forming Carol Co. So it's like a little precursor for that. Yeah, when I saw the uh, what is it? Uh, Kassar and Va- Vajna Vajna. Very many happy memories of seeing their names at the front of movies from the 80s and early 90s. So I was, it, it was a nice little, uh, you know, surprise going back this time. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. is an emotional and primitive man. Do you remember when we met? Suddenly, we were together. Lee Marvin is Walker, the hunter and the hunted. Walker. He makes my flesh crawl. What do you really want? I, I really want my money. I want my 93 grand. I want my money. deserted Alcatraz Island is not immune to Walker's vengeance. You're a very bad man, Walker, a very destructive man. Why do you run around doing things like this? Feel the blast of emotions at point-blank range. What do you want from me, Walker? You're supposed to be dead. the mental agony that overwhelms and consumes at point-blank range. Experience rapid-fire action at point-blank range. Things aren't done this way anymore, Walker. Let's be reasonable. That's right. November will continue with a look at John Borman's Point Blank. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Colin and Jonathan. Jonathan, what's been keeping you busy, sir? Well, right now, or right after this, I think, uh, I'll be going back to writing a book about uh, a Scottish film, Local Hero. And uh, I was lucky enough to chat to Bill Forsyth 
a few years ago, uh, and uh, and now I'm going back and speaking to other actors and, and cast and crew that were involved in that film. So that's my kind of current big project, and uh, uh, and I think I was on. I was on oh, earlier this year, wasn't I, Mike? I think talking about the the Highlander book that that I, I brought out. So um, so yeah, it's been a busy year. And Colin, what's happening with you, sir? I'm still over at a. Pulp Serenade, www.pulp-serenade.com. I'm trying to post more often. I did it for the first time in a couple months yesterday. But I'm working on a book on Daykeen, which has been keeping me busy for the past year. Hopefully can be wrapping that, you know, up, you know, end of this year and then start to figure out how to get that sucker out there. I'm still waiting for that cover of uh, the main theme from Emperor of the North Pole. I, I am behind on that. This stupid book's been a... Uh, keeping me from doing that, which is going to be my, my, my real masterwork. And after I do that cover, I can retire. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can read more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.